This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial subsidiary of the BBC. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I've always been interested in space since I was very young. I remember when I was about six, we got my dad a telescope for his birthday and I definitely used it more than him. Whenever it was clear and we'd go outside in the garden and lie on the floor and look up at the stars, he'd show me all the constellations and things like that. Orion and Orion's belt. We did the Big Dipper, the Big Bear. That was my favourite, I think. Cassiopeia. The Big Dipper and the Little Dipper come as a pair. Beetlejuice. I just liked that. It was like a little family in the sky. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight and this is the final episode of this series, a series that's told stories about some of the amazing animals that live among us and explored the technology that helps us get close to them. We've looked down on the wonder of our planet from above and met the people who are working hard to take better care of it. And now, for our final journey, we're looking beyond Earth, out through our thinning atmosphere to the stars and the depths of space. As I got older, I started wanting to learn about what was beyond that. I knew from a young age that my grandparents' generation had put men on the moon and my parents' generation had built the ISS. And I always wondered what it would be that I would do. Not many of us have been to space. From a planet of seven and a half billion, less than 600 of us have made it beyond the bounds of our atmosphere. Of them, around a third have been aboard the ISS, the International Space Station. It's a satellite, a permanently orbiting research platform 250 miles above the surface. The International Space Station is basically a collection of space stations built by different countries across the world. It's orbiting us right now. I think it orbits us 16 times a day, which means that the astronauts up there get 16 sunrises every day. That's Eleanor. So my name is Eleanor Griffin. I'm 17 years old and I study at King's High School in Warwick. She's not been to the International Space Station, but she did speak to them on the 19th of April, 2018. We were using radio signals from an antenna that was set up on our playground. These massive pieces of equipment and an absolutely huge antenna and bouncing them up into space onto the ISS. She managed this with the help of an organisation called ARIS, which stands for Amateur Radio on the International Space Station. They use ham radio, frequencies of the radio spectrum that hobbyists use to talk to each other, to connect to the ISS as it screams overhead at 17,000 miles per hour. About two weeks before the contact, we have a list of times come through when the ISS is orbiting right above the UK. And then the day before the contact, you get, okay. It's happening tomorrow. It's going to be at 11.09. Make sure everyone's there. Finally, finally. We had 
thousands of students submitting questions and we ranked them all, we chose our top 15. And then on the day of the link up, those 15 girls got to ask their questions. And then we will start, uh, Eleanor will start making the call to Ricky Arnold. Two and a half minutes, Kieran. Okay, so if we uh, bring the... I made the contact, so I sent out our call sign. I said, this is KHS, listening in for the International Space Station for a scheduled contact with Ricky Arnold. Listening and standing by for a scheduled contact with the International Space Station. Over. And we just had static in the background. And I was waiting, and I thought, yeah, it's fine. It'll take a while. It'll take a minute for him to pick up. But then the ARIS team prompted me to try and make the contact again. So I did. NA1SS, November Alpha 1, Sierra Sierra. This is GB4KHS, Golf Bravo 4, Kilo Hotel Sierra. Listening and standing by for a scheduled contact with the International Space Station. Over. Just static. And I was absolutely terrified at this point. I stood on stage in front of the whole school and it was being broadcast across the whole world. I thought, oh my gosh, it's, it's not going to work. What am I going to do? NA1SS, November Alpha 1, Sierra Sierra. This is so I did it again. contact with the International Space Station. Over. And I just breathed an absolute sigh of relief. It was the best feeling in the world, hearing him come in. Ricky, a very warm welcome from to, to Warwick, England, and King's High School for Girls. Are you ready for your first question? Over. I am ready for the question. So I made the contact and I asked the first question. This is Eleanor. When we colonise Mars, what's the most important thing we need to learn from our ancestors' mistakes on Earth? Over. The most important thing we need to learn from our ancestors is how to use our resources efficiently. We've learned a lot over the last thousand years on Earth here, and uh, we need to be very conscious on how we use our resources. I'm not going to lie to you, in the heat of the moment, I was just very excited that he was replying. There was definitely a sense of wonder and definitely awe at the fact that this man was flying above me at many miles per second, and we were able to have a conversation with each other, and he's a NASA astronaut actually in space who was talking to me. It was absolutely incredible. So the big picture you get from the International Space Station is that we live on a beautiful planet, there are not that many borders, and that uh, we are all humans who love our families. His name is Ricky Arnold, and he was a NASA astronaut. He was very friendly, and I think a very open and honest person. And we live on a beautiful satellite called Earth. Over. So you want to get as many questions as you can as possible. I am Florence. I'm Maddie. I'm Emma. This is Shapangi. What is the most magnificent place on Earth from space? What types of weather can you get on Mars? Do you believe there are other forms of life in the universe? Over. Yes, I do. Universe is so large that uh, humans cannot even comprehend it. I am convinced that there's got to be life somewhere. It may just be little bugs or little germs or little amoebas, but uh, I do believe somewhere that uh, we will probably never ever get to as humans, uh, there is life elsewhere. You have to be really clear, there is quite a lot of static on the radio. I'm sorry, I did not copy that question. Could you say it again? You also have to be very fast because you have absolutely no idea when the ISS is going to go over the horizon. I think we were in contact with him for eight minutes in total. We got to our 14th question and Ricky said, King's High, I can't hear you, I have to leave you. And 
uh, Kings High School, I think we are uh, losing contact here. I'm not very reading you very well. I want to thank you for a great day. You guys are all superstars, and I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. This is November Alpha 1 Sierra Sierra signing off Channel 40. Thank you, and have a great day, Kings High School. Uh, NAISS, this is the GB4KHS handing back to the International Space Station for a final. GB4KHS off and clear. Can we have a round of applause? It was definitely inspiring. It's definitely changed me as a person, give me this whole new awareness for the world around me and the space above me. A couple of weeks ago, I watched it fly over. It was a clear night, so I took advantage of the fact that it was clear and the ISS was flying over us relatively early on in the evening. It just looks like a moving star. Trying to imagine a team of people working together in that tiny dot flying above my head is incredible. Eleanor and the ARIS team used radio to communicate with the astronauts as they orbited the Earth. But did you know that the Earth is also using radio to communicate with us? So the Earth naturally generates radio waves. The natural radio waves that we pick up have two main sources. One is uh, lightning activity from thunderstorms on Earth, and the other is from geomagnetic storms driven by the sun. My name is uh, Nigel Meredith. I'm a space weather research scientist at the British Antarctic Survey. You have huge eruptions on the sun called coronal mass ejections, which throw out particles of magnetic field into space. And when they get to the Earth, they kind of tear open the Earth's magnetic field and this leads to uh, geomagnetic storms, and there are many effects associated with uh, geomagnetic storms. You get to see the aurora during a geomagnetic storm caused by energetic particles colliding with atoms and molecules in the upper atmosphere and causing them to glow with characteristic colours. The natural radio waves that we pick up, they are electromagnetic in nature, which means we can't hear them directly, but we can convert them to sound. Electromagnetic waves and sound waves are very different things. Sound waves can't travel through the vacuum of space for a start, and electromagnetic waves can. But they're both waves with a wavelength and a frequency, and you can use a radio receiver and an amplifier to translate one into the other, converting radio waves that we can't hear into sound waves that we can. It's the same thing that goes on inside a radio set, the same thing that goes on inside your mobile phone. And if we apply that same process to the radio waves streaming out of planet Earth, we can hear her sing. Earth's natural radio occurs in the frequency range from 10 hertz to 10 kilohertz, which is approximately the same as the human ear. So we can directly convert the electromagnetic waves to sound. We don't have to manipulate them in any way. So the main signals a ground-based receiver will detect are from lightning activity. And each lightning flash emits a short radio pulse, which we call a spheric, and these are heard as uh, short cracks and sound a bit like hail hitting the pavement. Spherics can be detected from uh, lightning that's up to 10,000 kilometres away. They can also travel even further, these spherics, up to halfway round the globe. The higher frequencies travel slightly faster than the lower frequencies, so that these signals undergo a little bit of dispersion. And these signals are known as tweaks, and they have more of a pinging nature. They're more like pings rather than um, short, sharp cracks. So some of the radio waves associated with lightning 
they can leave the atmosphere and leak out into near-Earth space, where they're guided by the Earth's magnetic field, and they can be received in the opposite hemisphere. The higher frequency waves travel faster than the lower frequency waves, so what comes back is actually a characteristic descending tone, which we call a whistler. These waves can be detected on Earth, but they can also be detected in space by satellites with suitable equipment. So another uh, very prominent signal type is known as chorus, and this isn't generated on Earth. It's generated deep within the Earth's magnetic field itself. And the most common form consists of rising and falling tones with frequencies typically between about one and five kilohertz. And these are known as chorus because some of them resemble the twittering of birds in the dawn chorus. Chorus and whistlers are also detected on other planets. So for example, the gas giants all have massive magnetic fields and Chorus has been detected on each of the planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. One of my favourite ones is some radio emissions that we have from Saturn that were recorded by Cassini. And, and when you listen to that, it's absolutely amazing. It just sounds like out of this world and it's definitely my favourite one. It sounds like I'm on some really distant planet and just amazing things just keep happening. You look one way and you see something, you look one way and you see something else. You've got no way of understanding it, but it just sounds so amazing. You can also buy a handheld device online for about $100 and it's basically an antenna attached to a little radio. I mean, when I first started to work with these waves, I bought myself one of these and you have to go out well away from man-made interference. So you need to go out into a field in the middle of nowhere, which is itself exciting. And then you can pick up the signals for yourself. It's very difficult to actually comprehend the scale of some of these things and that's what I find really fascinating trying to get an understanding of the scale of what we're listening to and it's quite challenging actually but fascinating to listen to the sounds. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week we're looking up, away from home and navigating by the stars.
If I ask you to think of the great navigators of the natural world, you might think of a wandering albatross, sleeping on the wing as she circumnavigates the globe. You might think of a wildebeest crossing savannas, or eels travelling thousands of miles to the Sargasso Sea. You probably wouldn't think of a dung beetle, but maybe you should. Uh, so hello, I am Marie Dacke, that is a professor of uh, sensory biology at Lund University. My greatest interests are within the area of navigation and orientation. So I'm using dung beetles to understand how insects can find their way around the world using the compass they have built into their brain. Why does a dung beetle need a compass? Well, they need to make a pretty quick getaway with some very valuable stolen goods. If they stay close to the dung pile, other dung beetles might just steal their ball. So the ones that have made the ball, they want to get away from the dung pile as efficiently as possible, and that is along a straight line. And to move along a straight line, you need a compass. You might think walking in a straight line is easy, but try doing it at night. While rolling a ball five times your size, standing on your head and going backwards. It's, it's a very funny thing, since they are such expert navigators, it's kind of uh, intriguing that they still move backwards with its bum up and head down. So how do they do it? The beetles use a compass using cues from the sky for them to roll in a straight line. As long as dung beetles can see the sky, they can use the light to navigate. Sunlight in the daytime and moonlight at night. But how they do it is interesting. Light that comes from the moon or the sun gets filtered through our atmosphere and becomes polarised, which makes lines or patterns in the sky. Patterns that we can't see, but that dung beetles can. So even if the moon is hidden by clouds, it doesn't matter because if the beetles can see only parts of these patterns in between the clouds, they can use that to navigate by. But out in the field in South Africa, Marie and her colleagues realised that dung beetles are even more sophisticated than we thought. Oh, so this, this was one of these fun discoveries when you think that everything goes wrong and then it actually turns out to be a very interesting finding. Marie and her team wanted to test how sensitive the beetles were. They knew they could navigate by the full moon. What about a half moon? A quarter moon? A crescent. Because of now, of course, the light levels are lower. They passed every test. And then we wanted to do a control. When there was no moon, there is no polarization pattern. So then we expected them to be lost. But the animals were not lost. We put one in and it rolled straight. And we thought, OK, well, this can happen. We put another one in and it also rolled straight. And then a third one and a fourth one. And then we had to accept the fact that these animals were doing quite well, even without a polarization pattern. And that's when we started to think that they could be using the stars in the sky. This was a surprise. Marie didn't think beetles could really see stars. In fact, no one really did. People had been calculating how sensitive an eye needs to be in order to navigate using stars. It wasn't really theoretically possible for these animals to do that. So that was really not in the back of our minds until we saw them moving straight under the starry sky. And then we had to question both the theoretical calculations and also our own understanding of the field. What they needed was a set of experimental stars, a set they could turn on and off at will. 
And so, standing in the middle of the South African desert, they made a pretty unusual phone call to a planetarium in Johannesburg. Uh, so the planetarium in Johannesburg, they said, OK, you can come, but you can only work during the nights because we are fully booked during the days. And then you say, it's dung beetles. And they say, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And then you need to say, so we need to bring dung into your planetarium as well. Uh, and they thought, yeah, OK, yeah, that's fine. So they were actually hosting shows during the day. And then all night we were rolling our beetles in the planetarium. And it did smell from dung also during the days, but they kind of grew fond of the Beatles after a while, so, so that worked. But it is a strange phone call to make in the beginning. They set up a little dung-rolling arena. Imagine a low, round table, a metre wide, covered in sand. They put a beetle in the middle, let it orientate itself and then watched it roll. The straighter it went, the better it was navigating. And when it dropped off the edge, it wins. And then we manipulated all the different things in the sky. We said show us only the brightest stars. The beetles couldn't solve that. We turned off all stars and then they were lost. Then one night we said, OK, turn off the Milky Way. And then the beetles were lost. So it turns out that the beetles cannot see the individual stars, but the Milky Way, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, will form a light streak across the sky. And that is what these beetles orient to. So they orient to the Milky Way as the only animal so far that we know can actually do this. There are certain moments in my life as a biologist and scientist that I really distinctly remember. And my time in the planetarium was one of them because it really looks like you're outside, but it's dead silent and there is no wind at all. And then being able to change the starry sky is just an amazing experience. And we were really tired. My collaborators, you know, they fell asleep every now and then in the planetarium because we were really working extremely hard. So when we found this and realized that something that we really couldn't understand before, we had actually understood what they were doing and it all made sense. It was a feeling that I still remember because it was, it was like having solved a really difficult quiz. And yeah, we celebrated that evening. Look up in the daytime and you'll see the sun. Look up at night and instead you'll see the moon. Or at least those were the rules of my crayon drawings when I was six. Sun for daytime and moon for nighttime. It was very clear. But of course, that's not how celestial orbits work. The sun and the moon can be and often are in the sky at the same time. In fact, one of nature's most spectacular natural events happens when the sun and the moon are in the same place at the same time. A total solar eclipse is one of the most awe-inspiring nature events that you can see. Um, it's when the moon moves in front of the sun, completely blocking out the sun. This is Dr Kate Russo. She loves eclipses. I mean, really loves them. If you want to know why, you'll need to understand something called totality, because she's hooked on it. 
A total solar eclipse occurs for around three hours or so, but totality is that central part where the moon locks into place in front of the sun. The light takes on a very strange, eerie tone. It, it is just really out of this world. It's this light, this... I, I can't even describe, I can't find the words to describe it. I had always wanted to see a total eclipse, I think since reading a story about it when I was younger. And as a teenager, I really loved the idea of traveling and seeing the world. And I had these things that I was creating a list of, uh, you know, places to visit, experiences to have. And seeing a total solar eclipse was on that list. But you get busy with all your work and I was studying and I completed a master's degree in Australia. And then after that, I decided I, that was time to travel the world. And so I backpacked around for a little bit. I arrived in the UK in 1997 and I settled there for a bit. And it was only there that I started to research, like, where is it that I can see an, a total solar eclipse? Which is how, in 1999, Kate and her partner found themselves getting off a bus in a small French village in search of their first eclipse. We started walking through the village. Bands were playing, so there was a big feeling of like a festival happening loads of people everywhere and so we just gathered a few things like a bottle of wine and some nice pastries and then we made our way towards where the crowds were gathering which was at the beachfront and as the time went on you could actually start to feel the crowd get a bit excited that first moment that the eclipse started we call that first contact and you see the first little bit of the moon making contact with the sun. And it just looks like, a, you know, the ball of the sun in the sky with a little chink taken out of it. And so that was pretty cool, very exciting. But then there's about an hour or so that we had to still experience. We would occasionally look up with our solar filters and see the progress that was being made. And then we'd stop and look around and have a little wine and, and just enjoy the scenery and being part of that massive crowd. The light just got dimmer and dimmer and it was a very strange light. I'd never seen it before. It's not like sunset or sunrise. It's just a very eerie quality to the light. It was getting dimmer and dimmer. And then in those final seconds before the total eclipse happened, it just seemed like the world rushed. It was so quick, dramatic, different, and then bam, totality. All of a sudden, like it just turned into this blank disc with this light and it was like time stopped um it, it, do you know that that sense of nothing mattered i was not aware of anything around me whatsoever my partner was by my side but it was like i had this little internal experience of me and the universe and i felt connected to something so much greater but i also had this feeling of being so powerful and um oh, connected i don't know I, I still struggle actually to put words to it. I remember turning to my partner and I couldn't I couldn't find the words. I was wanting to cry. Um, my throat had swollen up and I said, I don't care where the next one is, but we need to see this again. I, I just knew in my heart that I was an eclipse chaser. 
I have now seen um, 11 total solar eclipses. 2005 from the Pacific Ocean. Tunisia in the desert. 2006 to Turkey. 2008 outer Mongolia. 2009 I went to China. 2012 North Queensland in 2015, Australia. 2015 the Faroe 2016 Islands. to Sulawesi in Indonesia. And 2017 was in the US. You hear about the facts and figures and the science and the corona, that's the outer atmosphere of the sun that's visible. You hear all those things and they're interesting facts, but really it's the experience of totality. Suddenly, I was aware that the universe is in three dimensions. So I was on one planet and I was looking at the moon, which was a solid object out there moving in front of the sun. And so the feeling that I had about the universe just went out completely. It expanded and I was so insignificant in something so vast. And those moments of totality, it really is that feeling that this is what life is all about. It's brief, it's beautiful, intense, and then it's over. And that's our metaphor for life. What a way to end the final BBC Earth podcast in this series. My friends, it's been brief, beautiful, intense, but now it's over. But just like the eclipse, you can rest assured that we'll be back again before you know it. I'm Emily Knight, and if you keep subscribed to the feed, you'll be the first to know when we come back. But as always, if you want to keep in touch until then, you'll need the newsletter. Sign up at bbcearth.com forward slash newsletter for all the latest stories and videos from BBC Earth. Like the setting sun or the fading summer, We'll be back around very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.